Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to continue our live broadcast from the 2022 Mackinac Policy Conference on Mackinac Island. We're going to discuss what the Michigan business community is doing to bridge political and social divides. We'll find out what's next for retiring Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence. And we will discuss the business case for equity with the CEO of the Kellogg Foundation. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always thanks for tuning in. We are in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual Mackinac Policy Conference. A chance for business leaders, politicians, philanthropic leaders, media all to gather together to talk about the things that challenge us in Southeast Michigan in Michigan more generally, talk about maybe some national problems, and think about whether this is an opportunity to see those things differently, to have different conversations about our challenges, maybe come up with solutions that we weren't able to come up with back home. We are talking to as many of the folks as we can who are here on the island for the conference, and we're joined now by two of the architects of this event. Sandy Barua is the CEO of the Detroit Regional Chamber. Sandy, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. And also with us is Arne Tellum, who is vice chairman of the Detroit Pistons and the chair of the 2022 Mackinac Policy Conference. Arne, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Good to be with and, you, Stephen. And go Pistons. Look, I'm a native Detroiter. I grew up uh, I came of age really in the Isaiah Thomas era. This is, uh, I'm fanning out just a little here about the Pistons. <laughs> um, uh, Sandy, I want to start with you. This is the first time in two years that we're here in May again in person for this conference. Uh, that's got to be exciting for you. Uh, tell me how it's been. Uh, what's been successful this week? Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Uh, completely fabulous. Uh, you know, we are keeping the uh, uh, the attendance cap that we started last year uh, first because of COVID protocols, but now we just realize it's a better experience for everyone with the, with the smaller size. But the lineup of speakers that you know largely Arn uh, helped engineer with his terrific Rolodex and uh, his friend base <laughs> all around the country uh, has just been fabulous. And and you know what uh, you know. I guess there's two key themes that I'd like to say, Stephen. One is that everyone is so excited to be back up here, right? You know, that, that desire for face-to-face -face, uh, companionship, connection, uh, networking is, is so strong, and, and you can definitely tell that people are really appreciative of that. The second one is that there's definitely some common themes, uh, and again, the agenda was built for this, to really drive conversation around certain things, and we're coalescing around a real agreement that, you know, the state needs to do 
better around economic development, around business attraction strategy, you know, that this EV, you know, uh, challenge that's coming up or actually that we're in right now, we need to be better prepared for. Uh, and then also that, you know, we need to take drastic edu uh, uh, action on our, our educational attainment, both K through 12 and higher ed. We need to be a much higher performing state on educational attainment. Yeah, so Arne, uh, there, there seems to be a pretty common theme that it keeps emerging up here through all of the, the speakers uh, on stage. As Sandy said, you had a lot to do with getting the, the, the people who, who we're all listening to uh, talk about what the, what the thinking is behind all of that. Well, the theme was the role of business in these polarizing times. Yeah. And given my background was to sort of bring sports, uh, weave it into the conference, because sports is a unifier. Uh, it brings people together from all, from diverse cultures and backgrounds. Uh, and the great thing about sports is it breaks barriers, and it's a way to build relationships. And re going, you know, sort of piggybacking what Sandy said, what we wanted to do in this conference was build relationships, uh, because that starts hopefully the process <laughs> of getting better results in our state. And sports is a great example of people coming together to achieve great results. And that's what we got to do here. We got to be able to put aside partisan differences and find common ground and find common sense solutions. Um, one for economic development and also to help our young people, you know, have better futures. Yeah. And, uh, and hopefully this gives us a little momentum <laughs> and inspires our political leaders to do better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sandy, uh, we, we have talked about this concept up here many, many years, right? This idea of civility, this idea of bridging the gap between left and right or north and south in our state or whatever. Um, what's different about what we're doing this year up here? It, it does feel different. Um, the, the, the framing maybe for the narrative is different. Well, I think there's a growing realization, Stephen, especially amongst our leaders, either they be education, political, business leaders, that you know our nation and our state, frankly, has become too divided. That you know we are we are uh, so polarized along ideological lines or polarized on particular issues that it's it's reached dangerous proportions. And I think as more and more people recognize that they're kind of getting back to their core principles which is that I don't have to agree with someone on an issue or agree with someone politically to like them personally to be able to treat them with civility and the great thing about this particular event is that we bring so many leaders together that you know people are kind of are getting back in the habit of being on their better behavior, listening to their better angels, as opposed to how you know many people behave on Twitter, right? I mean, it's one thing to you know tweet something out at eleven o'clock at night that you think might be clever or you know as kind of a zinger. You know, most people uh, you know aren't going to do that when they're face to face, and I think this is, you know events like this are, are a great reminder. I also want to say, Stephen, just building on what Arne said about about sports. You know, you know, one obviously, you know, sports is a great platform, uh, as Arne was alluding to, because no matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, mm -hmm. right? You know, you don't like the Tigers any more or less based on your party affiliation, or uh, you, you you don't hope for the Lions any more or less if you are a, a Democrat or Republican. And the other thing about sports, which I which I think is really important, is that. 
sports is an, uh, an is yet another area where we have a set of shared facts, mm-hmm. right? You know, kind of facts are facts in sports, and in our political world, uh, you know, agreeing on a on a simple set of facts is 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 no longer taken for granted, right? I mean, if we can't even agree on a basic set of facts, how can you hope to have any kind of real progress towards very real issues that we face? Yeah. You also released the results of a poll uh, while we're here. Uh, it had some interesting things to say about uh, how we feel about our politics, how we feel about each other. Uh, what are the, the highlight uh, uh, results of that? So, uh, again, it is the political divide. You know, so, you know, it's not surprising that we saw big differences uh, between how Democrats, Republicans view things like, you know, uh, Joe Biden's job performance or, mm-hmm. you know, issues uh, like, like Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. Completely expected, right? But we are now, st- we now see partisan differences based on things that I think are, at least I thought, they were completely nonpartisan. One, the expectations for the duration of inflation, mm. right? If you're a Republican, you think that it's going to last a lot longer than Democrats. And I think that is a, you know, Democrats are trying to be supportive of the of the president. The Republicans are trying to, you know, be not supportive of the president. <laughs> and it's like, going, well, you know, this is supposed to be not, you know, is inflation, what do you think? Is inflation going to last a long time or not? Why is that a partisan issue? The strength of our school system, our, our public schools, right? You know, we're all sending our kids to the same, you know, public school system, yet, you know, Democrats have one view, Republicans have another view. It is it is just stunning how uh, extreme the partisan divide is, is getting. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Arne, when you were thinking of putting together this lineup, uh, as Sandy said, it's your Rolodex that uh, gave us access to some of these people. The names are really impressive this year. Uh, John Meacham, Ted Koppel, uh, Van Jones. I mean, they're, 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 this is... Uh, uh, a conversation on a different level than we normally have on Macadon. It's usually pretty high level itself. Uh, talk about how we, how we came up with this list. Well, I work very closely with the chair, but I don't want to take <laughs> all the credit. But uh, I think once we had this theme, uh, I th- the, the great thing was that everyone wanted to participate. And we and our goal was we were going to reach out for the biggest names. Yeah. I think Sandy and I both agree. Let's go for it. And uh, and we did, and I was amazed. Stephen, just uh, uh, you know, we have Steve Bomber today, and Tom Gorris, yep. and, and Stephen Ross came yesterday. When I sent out the email to them, literally, I was expecting I wouldn't even hear back. <laughs> within minutes, within minutes, uh, they accepted, and I think the reason they accepted was they're Michiganders through and through. Yeah, um, I think they all wanted to come and share what they're doing here and how and. Not only what they're doing, but also to convey how deeply they care, even though they may live elsewhere, how deeply they care about Michigan's well-being mm-hmm. and uh, and what it means to them. And uh, Stephen Ross was fantastic yesterday. And I know Tom, who made the big announcement yesterday about the community center, and, and Steve Bomber are going to be really great today. And I thought John Meacham, speaking to me, I was just talking to Sandy beforehand, I thought was one of the best speakers that I've ever heard here or anywhere. Mm. He was so powerful, and his message to me really hit home. Yeah. And I hope our political leaders uh, heard that. They really should have been in the, there listening to him. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
And uh, so I think it's been a great lineup, and I think that's part of the energy that why you f we feel it's been such a positive conference so far. Yeah, yeah. let's talk about Tom Gores, uh, your boss, who uh, is making some waves up here with this announcement of this huge investment to help uh, create a, a, a kind of central point for kids in Rouge Park. A lot of people don't know that Historically, Rouge Park was as much of a gathering place for Detroiters as Belle Isle or any other park in the city. It's been a long haul to get it back to the place where people, even in some cases, feel comfortable going there. Uh, this is a huge turn in that narrative. Yeah, what's interesting is, well, first off, let me talk about Tom. Tom is very passionate about making a difference here in Detroit and in the state. And on this decision, he is, first off, he is an inclusive and collaborative leader. So he really talked to the players, to the coaches, to the front office, to everyone on the business side, really soliciting their viewpoint on what would be the best way to make the biggest impact in Detroit. And everyone sort of, sort of coalesced about around this idea of let's do something significant and build a community center in an underserved, underrepresented area. And that was the charge. And then I spoke to the mayor who drove me out and showed me this site. Um, and he said, this is really where it should be. It's a historic site, like you mentioned. Uh, they have two Olympic-sized swimming pools. It was the home of the 1956 and 60 Olympic swimming trials. Mm -hmm. um, and we had already done two courts as part of our court renovation out, outdoors. So when I saw it, it was, I agree with the mayor, it, this would be the perfect site. And it's a community that really needs help. Mm -hmm. And what we're gonna do, Stephen, is really solicit their views, but we have a lot of ideas. We're just not, it's not gonna just be sports, that'll be part of it. We're gonna build two indoor basketball courts, of course, but we're gonna hopefully provide things like financial literacy, legal aid, a free laundromat, things that can serve the community to bring, not just for, to serve the kids, but also to serve the families. Mm -hmm. And my hope is, the mayor said, this will be a, a wedding site. It'll be used for all different purposes. Yeah. And uh, we're going to solicit the community's viewpoint to see what they want in there. And uh, so we're really excited about it. Tom is so passionate about it. I think this is going to be a great project. The mayor believes, we believe, it's going to be the flagship community center of the city of Detroit. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really, it's, a, it's really an amazing turn. And again, that nod to the history here is so important. I mean, Detroiters have the longest memories of any Americans I know. And so uh, we, we all know what Rouge Park was. Uh, yeah. It would be really great to have it back. Uh, so Sandy, what's next? Uh, we talk about these things up here. We try to get people together. We try to get them to think differently about how to interact with each other. How do people take what they're doing here and make it work back in Detroit or in Lansing or in Washington? Yeah, so I would say there's two things. You know, one I would say very tactically, Stephen, is that we want to take the conversations that we're going to have later on today, both on stage and uh, at a luncheon that we've engineered, uh, really to uh, drive the conversation at the statewide level about the about the changes and the increase in robustness that we need uh, to do around economic development. Right, our economic development strategy. We need to we need to be a winner. Uh, as a state, uh, as the auto industry transitions from uh, from internal combustion to electric propulsion, mm -hmm. uh, and it is it is a complicated uh, uh, issue. I mean, the, the the supply chain gets even more complex 
uh, with, with, with EVs. Uh, EVs are a very different dynamic, very different complexity uh, than uh, the internal combustion engine, and we need to get really smart and really aggressive on that. So I think you know, uh, we are trying to engineer this as a launching point for, for that statewide conversation, and I'm confident we'll be able to do that. The second one is, is not necessarily tactical, it's more ethos. Mm -hmm. And that is, can people take, you know, regardless if you're a conservative or, or, or a liberal, can you walk away from this island with just that little bit more empathy for what the other guy or gal is thinking and feeling? Can you, you know, can you find a way to find something in common with them? You may disagree with them on X and Y, but you know, can you agree with them on Z? Is there something around Z, whatever Z is? Uh, hopefully that might be you know, uh, 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 something around guns, right? You know, where you can find maybe something. It might be small, uh, but I think uh, we're at a point in society that uh, John Meacham said uh, is at maximum danger. So, you know, if, unless we start pivoting now and start finding at least small things where we can agree on and work together, uh, you know, our society could be headed for, for an outcome that none of us want. Okay, uh, Cindy Barua, Arn Tellum, great job on the conference. Uh, thanks for being here. Unless you want to talk about this draft pick, Arn, you know, tell I'm me I'm always something. happy to talk <laughs> basketball, Stephen. <laughs> now or anytime. No. <laughs> I'll just say this. Let me just say this about our team. We're headed in the right direction. I feel the best about our team since I've been here in the last seven years. And the reason why is we're building a great, we have a great foundation of young players. Yeah. Start with Sadiq Bey, Kate Cunningham, who's going to be a future all-star, uh, Isaiah Stewart. We finally have cap money to spend. We have the fifth pick in the draft this year. We're going to get a great player, young player. We're, we're headed in the right direction. And our goal, Stephen, is sustainable success, not yeah. to be there for one year, but yeah, it's to have right. a seven, over and over. Just like the going to work team or the bad boys, we want to have a, a seven to ten year run with with these with this core of players, and I, we're on our way. And I really feel we're we're, we're going to give Detroit a team they can be proud of once again, and it's ha it's going to happen. Just give us another couple of years, yeah. but we're headed in the right yeah. direction. Yeah. I think we're patient and excited both at the same time. No, Detroit's a great sports city. It's a great basketball town. And the, we, I can sense it. The, the fans are starting to feel it now. Yeah. They're coming back. They, starting they, 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 they're starting to believe again. They're starting to believe again. All right. Uh, thanks for being here. Okay. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk with Lejeune Montgomery Tabron. She's president and CEO of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. We're going to talk about the business case for racial equity. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. That din and clinking you hear in the background is the sound of the folks at the Mackinac Policy Conference in the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island up here uh, talking about uh, Detroit's challenges, the state's challenges, national challenges, talking about whether we might think of those things differently think of different solutions that we come up with when we're all together in southeast michigan uh we're talking right now with 
leaders who are here, business leaders, political leaders, philanthropic leaders. And speaking of such, our next guest is the president and CEO of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, one of the largest foundations in the world, Lejeune Montgomery Tabron. Welcome back. Thank today. you, Stephen. It's nice to see you and nice to yes. be here. It's nice to see you in person. I don't know that I've seen you in person in the last uh, two years. It's right? been about that. Yes, <laughs> we've right. all been a little detained. We've had to be a little separate. Um, so I, I, I love having you on the show uh, to talk because I, I feel like we always have really great conversations, um, uh, not just about the foundation and its work, but the importance of that work to the city of Detroit uh, and to, to people like you and me who grew up in the city of, uh, of, of Detroit and, and who are really familiar with the needs, the, the broad spectrum of needs uh, that we have. Um, so you've been in this role now for... I can't remember how over eight years is it eight now. Years? Yeah, my and I just celebrated my 35th anniversary at the Kellogg is Foundation. Is that right? So wow, it's been a journey. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you you came into the role of CEO and said, "We can do this differently. We can do this smarter, and we can do this with more impact." Um, so, talk about how that has unfolded over well, the last eight it's, years. It's been very interesting, Stephen, and you know. Uh, Prior to the pandemic, you and I spoke a lot about workforce development, mm -hmm. right? And how we want to make sure that impact for us is putting people in jobs, yeah. quality jobs, livable wage jobs, creating pathways for families so that they can cre create stability for their children, uh, supporting entrepreneurship in the city of Detroit, being part of that recovery in a way that looked to families and neighborhoods. Yeah. And then there was this pandemic, right? right? And right. so we're here on Mackinac this week talking about, of course, workforce, but how we now have a greater hurdle uh, because the state of Michigan, for example, lost 23% of its jobs yeah. during the pandemic. Right. And really talking about the impact of this pandemic that was um, more disparate as it related to people of color, women, and now what the recovery and reemergence must look like and yeah. how intentional we have to be moving forward as we are looking at creating opportunities for people of color in the state and women and looking at those issues that will impact their ability to be uh, part of the economy and childcare was the top of the list. Yes. We, you know, we saw how devastating that critical function is for employment, mm -hmm. for parents, mm -hmm. for children, and you know, it's great to be in a space where we want to do something about this. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, ECOG has this really intense focus on children and exactly. kids' uh, birth to age eight. Um, I feel like they've taken the brunt of some of the, the consequences of the, of the pandemic. The question to me is, so what do we do now? What are the levers we pull to soften the blow, uh, but, but then even more than that, to, to push them further ahead than they were before, and especially in places like Detroit, uh, where you layer on top of that all the other problems that we have, 
it's not an easy it's not an easy question to answer. It's, it's not at all. And you know, in Detroit, we partnered with Kresge and we launched Hope Starts Here, which yeah. is all about making sure that every child in the city of Detroit has access to early childhood mm -hmm. development mm -hmm. from zero to age four before entering kindergarten. When we started before the pandemic, 2017, we were looking at about 28,000 seat gap. During the pandemic, that went to 43,000. Wow. So wow. the opposite direction. Yeah. Uh, we're now starting to whittle down at that, but we're understanding very systemically what it's going to take to fill that gap. Um, the good news is because of this pandemic, employers are now keenly aware of the importance of child care, yeah. not only for the child, but for the, the family for the and family. for productivity. Yeah. Uh, so we're taking in partners in that regard. Uh, and I think overall, um, ARPA dollars mm -hmm. are critical. And we want to really push to make sure that some of those resources are deployed in ways um, that are looking at you know, universal pre-K in the city of Detroit, ways to invest in uh, new providers in this space, to increase the wages of the providers in the space mm -hmm. of early child care. We learned that most of the providers in this uh, age range, zero to four, they are making minimum wage and left the profession because they could get more resources on unemployment. and. We have to make this a profession that is a pathway into a teaching profession yeah. so that we can make sure that there's a career pathway for providers in this space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you also brought this incredible lens uh, of racial equity to the fore of, of Kellogg's work. And I, I, I've always thought it was kind of an innovative way you did it. You said, look, there is a business case to be made for equality, for racial equality, and that that has a different opportunity, I think, to reach people's minds uh, and, and influence their actions than some of the other reasons that we talk about uh, racial equity. Uh, you and I talked about that when you first uh, adopted that. Give us an update on how that's yeah. going. It's, it's it's going well. I think the narrative of the business case resonates with people. Yeah. And for the state of Michigan, for example, uh, we quantified that. And we basically said that, you know, if we were to make sure that every adult had an opportunity to enter the workforce or become an entrepreneur, uh, that we, we could create an, an additional $92 billion of GDP for the state by 2050. Uh, and that's about, you know, $15 billion a year in, in additional revenue for the state. So part of that business case was not only that we were leaving dollars on the table, there was also this concept of our shared fate. So as we leave people behind, uh, we're not just leaving them behind, we're preventing our state from growth and opportunity. And as that begins to resonate, uh, I think what's happening is we're having more people very interested in understanding now how to address these issues of equity. Yeah. Uh, they want to do it, they just don't know how. And so what we've done in the last few years is we've 
added programs. We have uh, an area of funding, we're calling it expanding equity, where we're actually working with corporations mm -hmm. and helping them think very deeply about how to create an equitable work environment and to recruit in more equitable ways so that the opportunities are open up for all people. And yeah. that's getting some great tractions. We work, we've worked with over 80 companies now, and they're putting in solid practices, yeah. changing their HR practices, and really committing themselves to think about what true equity looks like. And what we've said to them, and it's been very interesting, um, because we tell them that you don't get to racial equity until you address the issue of racial healing. Yes. Yes. So healing is at the heart of racial equity, and at first, some of these companies were like, what is that? <laughs> what are you talking about? But they're learning how to create trusting relationships within corporations that allow all people to thrive and, and really value their differences. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of uh, good timing to be encouraging people to do that, because I think nationally, maybe, we are more open to the idea of, first of all, looking back to try to assess the, the, the damage that racial inequity has created, right? Uh, assess what uh, what can be done to, to, to pay back people who are harmed by it. But, but then that that is the only way, really, to get to a space where, okay, now we can make things equal because we've dealt with the things that have happened in the past and that's a really hard thing to say in a c-suite I, I know yes. that um, mm -hmm. but but maybe this national conversation makes it a little more palatable yeah I, I really do and it's been interesting uh, because you you do get that first reaction and I think part of the initial reaction is from lack of awareness from lack of understanding um, and, and you know, people think about this work as just training, mm -hmm. you know. We did our unconscious bias training, and it's so much more than that. Mm -hmm. If you're really trying to create a culture that is an equitable culture that allows everyone opportunities to thrive. So we've gotten down to how companies think about sponsorship within their company. Who mm -hmm. gets sponsored? Mm -hmm. uh, what does mentorship look like? How do you make sure that someone is on a promotion pathway so you're not just recruiting people in the entry level and then you have what we call for some corporations the leaky bucket hmm. where your people of color leak out and never make it to the c-suite or real leadership uh, positions and uh, by framing it that way people understand yeah you know that's costly for us uh, and it's not allowing us the type of diversity that we need to be on top right right uh, when we talk about the dollars that uh, could be made, uh, could be in the economy, I, there's a, there's a, there's an equitable dimension to that as well, right? It's not just that uh, business itself will make more money. It's that the people who make up business will do better and uh, and have more opportunity. Um, and that's a really that's a really difficult thing to get people to understand as well, I think. Yeah. And you know, the other part of that is 
uh, and it's why we support the Entrepreneurs of Color Fund in the city of Detroit. Yes. Uh, when you're creating wealth, yes. uh, you actually want to have people of color uh, in, invest invested in. We need uh, access to capital, and that's been a part of the inequality. People of color have a harder time accessing the capital to grow their own business. And through our Entrepreneurs of Color Fund, what we've been able to do is promote the startups, mm -hmm. the recovery coming out of this pandemic. Um, and what we know is that people of color will tend to hire more local people. And small business is what really grows your economy. We know that. And so our investment in entrepreneurship and uh, local investing is, I think, a part of the foundation that's really going to grow a Detroit, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Lejeune Montgomery Tabron, it is always really great to talk with you. Uh, it's especially great to see you up here on Mackinac Island. It's this great year. to be back. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for joining us. On Thank you for that. having me, Stephen. You yeah. have a great time up here. Yes, you too. <laughs> All right, when we come back, we are going to talk with Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence. She is the Congresswoman right now for Michigan's 14th District. She is not seeking re-election. We're going to talk about why. We'll talk about what she's done while she's in Washington and what she might be thinking of doing next. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. We're the dining room of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island during the Detroit Regional Chamber's annual Mackinac Policy Conference. We're up here for the first time since 2019 in May because of the disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, most of the political leaders from Southeast Michigan and many from Lansing and Washington are here. Uh, a lot of our business leaders from around the state are here. A lot of the philanthropic leaders uh, are here. Our next guest is a pretty frequent guest here on Detroit Today, and someone we almost always try to talk to when we're up here on Mackinac. Uh, Brenda Lawrence is a congresswoman who represents Michigan's 14th district uh, in Washington. Congresswoman, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, and I make a point to find you when I'm up here so we can have some <laughs> meaningful... I was going to say, uh, we have such great conversations up here, and I think that's proof that this conference does have value, right? It does. I feel like we talk differently. We do. Uh, when we're up here than we do when we're back home. Yes. Um, so let's start with you. Uh, you've decided not to seek re-election, um, which means that uh, you will be leaving us uh, in, in, in terms of elected public service. Exactly. Um, talk about that decision uh, and uh, what it means. You know, there is, and I, I refer to the biblical uh, uh, description, there's a time and season for everything in your life. Yeah. Um, 
I've had an amazing ride in public service. It's defined me, it has challenged me, and it has really given me opportunities. I want to continue to serve and be part of making this world a better place, be hopeful. But I can do that in somewhere else other than elected office. Mm -hmm. Elected office has its limitations and it also has a tremendous amount of prowess and spaces that you can go into. Um, but I'm excited about this next chapter. I, you know, I, I like to, to tell everyone it's like reading a really, really good book. <laughs> and you can't wait to turn the page for the next chapter. So wow. that's where I am. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you leave quite a legacy behind, of course, uh, in Congress. But let's talk about how your district has changed uh, over the time that you represented it. It's a strange district. It's maybe one of the strangest districts we've ever seen drawn here in the state of Michigan. Um, you're the second person to represent us in that district, and now that's going to go away and have something different. Yes. But talk about what what it has been like to try to represent people who live along the Detroit Riverfront uh, alongside people who live in Pontiac. Uh, it's such disparate so if I could just paint the picture for the listeners, I represent all five of the Gross Points, Hopper Woods, the city of Detroit, um, then Hamtramck, then I cross Eight Mile Road, which is significant, so I go to another county, and it's Royal Oak Township, Oak Park, Southfield, Farmington Hills, West Bloomfield, Kego Harbor, Orchard Lake, Sylvan Lake, and Pontiac. So when you... When you hear those cities, you immediately think about the wealth that's associated with some and the economic challenges associated with others. It's amazing diversity. And, you know, I always felt like when I walked in the room and I spoke, I was representing America. Yeah. Because the diversity that I represent, I understand building wealth and economic development, small business. also understand poverty social services, educational challenges. I have one of the best school districts in the country, and I have some of the most challenged in the country. And the education, just based on a border of a city, is totally different. And so I have to work really hard to spin my head around to make sure I'm hearing all the voices. And that has made me a better um elected official and I feel a better person as a result of that yeah so I, I also want to talk about the news which of course is pretty grim these days uh, and Congress is being asked what it can do mm -hmm. uh, we had another mass shooting mm -hmm. last night uh, mm -hmm. in Tulsa Oklahoma this time at a hospital each time it's at a it's at a different place that it's you're at like a sacred place. What, are, what, what is going on? You should be able to go to these places without fearing for your life. Um, um, what's possible? I think is the, is the question. What can we actually do that would that would reduce the likelihood of these things happening? And then when when I say possible, I mean politically possible. I mean uh, you, you've got two very different perspectives on the idea of gun ownership in this country, I think. And, and the Republican Party uh, is is 
dug in in many ways in the idea that uh, that right, that right to, to own a gun is as near absolute as uh, as any other. As life um, itself in right. some situations. Right, and that, we, that there just isn't something we can do. So one of the things that if I could do anything, it would transfer this passionate love of a gun. I, I often question people, what does that do for you? What does it, how does it make mm. you feel, the fact that you own a gun? Because I see people who are almost in love with guns as they will, are with their wife, their spouse, or significant other. Mm-hmm. They love their guns. I had a co-worker, and I'm going to tell you how transformational my thought process was. And I was telling him, because he was a gun manufacturer, and he had been elected to Congress. So I made a point to be lying to him and say, I want to have a discussion about guns. I want to understand that. Yes. And he said his five-year-old daughter asked for a gun for her birthday. And I said, really? And he said, I said, what did you say? He said, well, I said, when your fingers are big enough to pull the trigger, I'll buy you a gun. And when she was like seven, he bought her a pink gun. She's 16 now, so she has four guns. And I'm saying, I would put you in jail if you bought a gun for a five-year-old. I think that's awful. Why would a child want a gun? What do you gain from that? Um, But, you know, in my mind, it is not normal for a human being to want something that kills something to be so passionate about it. And, you, you know, we have almost more guns in America than we do people. Than we do, yeah. 400 million guns, yeah. And we're going back to the wild, wild west. You watch westerns, and when we had a debate on those westerns, we stood in the middle of the street, and we, we stood and we shot at each other. And it was considered, okay, a dead body was drawn. What? But get back to the legislation. We definitely have to address... Red flags. Mm-hmm. I don't see how anyone can disagree with that. If I, as a person who's close to you, see behavior, witness violence in other ways, that I wouldn't report you and say you don't need to own a gun. Yeah. So we have an opportunity there. Background checks, please. What is the problem with that? To say someone is, you do it for a car, and a car is not designed to kill something. You cannot drive a car in America without getting a driver's license. A driver's license. And it has to be renewed. And it's, 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 it's age restrictions on it. Mm-hmm. And then once you buy it and pay for it, you have to wear a seatbelt. You have to adhere to laws. And we adapt to that. And then the other thing that people are so uncomfortable, I think we should harden our schools. We, after 9-11, we hardened our airports. You remember the time you could walk all the way to the gate with your loved one. Now everyone is screened. And once you get on the other side of that, we know you do not have a gun on you. I'm I'm sorry. I don't like the look either. If being a person of resources, I wouldn't want my child to have to go through that. But I don't want my child to come home in a body bag either. Mm -hmm. And make them pretty. Put, Put dinosaurs on or Elmo or something. But we're going to have to create a system where when our children walk into the building, we know they're safe. Wow. 
Wow. I mean, that's a that, that's such a hard image to get my mind around. And, and I know there's a real debate about uh, yes. how we manage security in schools and if we turn them into jails or prisons by by putting up prisons, metal detectors just, uh, airports uh, aren't prisons yeah right well i mean I, I i i tend to fall down on that side but do you think that if we did those things things would change would this would would, would we be and i guess what i'm asking is are we also dealing with and I think we should do all of those things because they mm -hmm. make sense. And yeah. guns should be regulated like other property, in right. my mind. Um, but do we have a bigger cultural problem right now that inspires too many people to think, well, I'm going to go kill those people because I don't like them, because I don't like what color they are, I don't like what religion they are, whatever the reason is. Um, well, we could really go deep into where we are in America, and this whole conference has talked about civility, civility, right? So we know that it has been legitimately approved for people to hate each other. Sure. You know, like you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, we should hate each other. Uh, I'm pro-choice, you are anti-choice. We should hate each other. Um, I'm gay, you straight. We should hate each other. And it, it's just constant messaging that we do. So that's what's so powerful about this conference. Mm. The business community has been programmed to, if you make money, you're successful. Mm. And everything you do is okay. Where the business community has been complicit in a lot of these issues because of their silence. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to talk about it. I don't see it because I'm making money. Mm. You know, I may not treat my workers well, but look at my bottom line. I, you know, I can discriminate against people because I have enough workers. And yeah, I didn't give people that color or that race a job. But guess what? I got enough people here and I'm making money. And so to introduce the concept of responsibility for the climate and the civility in our country to corporate America, I think mm. is brilliant, is timely. Um, but mental health, we keep talking about that. You can't walk away from this without talking about mental health. No. And I, I think I shared with you in one of the shows, I had a t town hall on mental health. And a therapist who was on my panel said, I have a T-shirt. It says, I, I go to church, I worship God, and I see my therapist. <laughs> right. Because in the black community, I can say that, you know, they'll say, oh, baby, you just need to pray. That's just the devil work, yeah. and you'll There's be all right. Yeah. yeah, and and like, you crazy? You going to see a therapist? Mm -hmm. You know, but if you have diabetes, you need to go see your doctor. You need to take your medicine. Girl, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. But when you see the mental health issues, we are not encouraging the same health that you can get as you would with a physical health care doctor. Mm. So I, I do want to talk about what's next for you. You have been in public service your entire years. life, really, <laughs> right? Uh, your job was, yes. was a public yes, service true. job. And then mm -hmm. you started to serve people in elected positions. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do when you walk away from this? I am going to find a way to continue to serve. 
I'm going to do something I wish more people in the public life would do, and that is to speak up when things aren't right. For some reason, they think it's only the politician's responsibility to address inequities or someone in the media. But as a private citizen, I feel I have a responsibility to continue to call out those things and to address them and, you know, and get involved in dialogue. I want to teach. I'm a firm believer I have not been given these opportunities and experiences to just go home and plant flowers. So I want to find a way to teach and to uh, influence the next generation. And I'm going to serve on some boards and, and just keep my fingers into what's moving in the community. Yeah, I, I know you will not disappear. <laughs> um, what about your new district? Uh, there's a lot of people who say they want to represent that district. Yes. And, and you've chosen to endorse one of those people. But mm-hmm. I, I'm also curious what you think of what they did with the lines this time. Mm-hmm. Again, your district was uh, was strange to us when it was drawn, yes. and we were like, ah, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You made it work. Yeah. Um, uh, what about these new lines? Well, after living through almost a decade of this crazy drawn district, no, these these lines don't make different any. They don't make sense. We thought going moving it from political power to draw the lines to a commission, mm-hmm. and we're still in a place where. I fundamentally believe that the way the seats are drawn, you're reducing the opportunity for for black people to represent themselves, Mm. and it's been deliberate, and I heard really um, directed conversation to keep communities of interest, is how they labeled it, Mm -hmm. together, Mm -hmm. but it seems to be okay to split up the black community. And then there's the issue of the census, which the black community was undercounted. Yeah. I don't know how and, you make those numbers yes. work for the next 10 years. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's we're fighting it now, but you know, we're hoping for a mid-decade um, change. Sure. But we're, you know, I'm supporting Duggan and the team and we're fighting these um, the numbers because we know it was clearly undercount and it has been validated that there was an undercount in Detroit. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Brenda Lawrence, I'm going to miss these talks, but you had to swear when you're out of office, you will still come by and see us. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just want to say throughout the years, having media that is intelligent, compassionate, and deliberate in promoting the conversation. Sometimes I would cringe because you would bring up issues that, <laughs> ugh, I, I, I wish I didn't have to talk about it. But that is so important to who we are as a democracy. Thank you so much. Aww, and, thank you. And Godspeed to you. And when I call, you better take my call. <laughs> always well. Always well. Okay. <laughs> okay. Take care. You too. That is going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more about the Mackinac Policy Conference on Mackinac Island. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.